And we're live. Welcome to Don't Be Coy. I'm your host, Uncle Lou. And today I have the honor, pleasure, and the utmost appreciation to have with me today, Miss Samantha Rosenthal. Samantha, thank you for being on the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, no problem. How's your previous week been going? Any takeaways? Uh, you know what? It's been great. And, and uh, you know, it feels like life is good again after uh you know a couple years of real struggle Mm. no i i I totally understand that totally understand that we might get on that a little bit later um if you don't mind can you tell us a little bit about yourself for the people at home sure my name is samantha rosenthal and uh i'm currently an associate professor at johnson and wales university in providence rhode islands Um, I'm also an adjunct associate professor at Brown University in the School of Public Health, uh, which is actually where I've trained for many years at Brown. I got a master's in public health there, as well as my PhD in epidemiology. Um, Before that, I was actually a chemical engineer and biomedical engineer trained at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. So I've I've hopped around quite a bit, um, but I'm originally from Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. And honestly, today I do a lot of teaching to undergraduates and graduate students. I do a lot of research on social issues and the health and well-being of young adults in particular. Um, and honestly, I just I feel like I'm living the dream. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today as far as like living your dream and like how you went about to to get to this place and like some of the as you mentioned earlier, like um, not necessarily trials and tribulations, but just the the path to get to that point and like how you balanced it all to um, to get to this perspective where you really feel like you're living the dream. So, uh, you know, I, I think what's really interesting is that, you know, you've had this um, really impressive like academic um, repertoire where whether it's Carnegie Mellon and then getting two degrees at Brown. Like, how did that journey start off with you deciding to go off to Carnegie Mellon? Well, I'm gonna be really honest with you. I um, I was a good student. It was a one part of my life that I felt really confident about and good about myself in. And I knew I was good at math and science. And I really didn't even know what engineering was, but I knew that's kind of what you're expected to do if you're good at math and science. That was this like ideal, you know, vision that I heard. It was like a buzzword, you know? So I wanted to do it just because I I was proud of my work in school and I knew it was something that was impressive and I was always just trying to do the best um, in that realm. Uh, But I really had no idea what I was signing up for, (laughs) if I can be honest with you. (laughs) Um, And it it was actually a really challenging time in my life. I, I had some, you know, real struggles in high school. I actually got kicked out of uh, a whole county of public schools. And when I applied to college, I wasn't enrolled in a high school. So it was tricky. I wasn't sure if I was going to get to college after all my hard work. And um, when Carnegie Mellon accepted me, I ended up just super grateful that a, that a top tier school would still want me after kind of my, a lot of my struggles that I had. Um, you know, so I went there to do engineering and in my mind, I thought chemical engineering was a good way for me to get into like health and wellness. 
I was thinking around like vaccine development, pharmaceutical development. Um, but when I got there, that wasn't the case. It was like, honestly, it was like big oil paint, like synthetic paint materials, big oil, like chemical weapons, you know, this whole other realm mm. that was not a part of my vision, not a part of the impact I wanted to have. And that's why I ended up picking up the biomedical engineering. I was never someone who was going to drop something, so I wasn't going to quit the chemical engineering, but I'm always someone who's going to pick up another thing. <laughs> so I added the biomedical engineering and that was kind of where I found more, more meaning, yeah. you know, because it was medical devices artificial organs like rehabilitation engineering we did surgery for engineers so that kind of felt like my my bread and butter um for my engineering degree yeah no that makes a lot of sense and so i i guess like um when you i guess you could say decided that you want to do this mission driven type of work or found the passion that you wanted to have for the impact that you wanted to leave into this world like what kind of made that pivot from engineering to getting your master's in public health and um, going into epidemiology? Yeah, good question. So I didn't even know the term epidemiology until my last year of undergrad. Never heard it, didn't know the word. I took one elective that was like epidemic disease and public health. And I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning about it, understanding this whole realm that I didn't know about. But I stuck with my engineering and I um, I went to work for a big like Fortune 50 company actually on beauty products, which uh, for anyone who knows me is not the best fit for who I am because <laughs> I am not a I'm not a consumer of beauty products myself. Um, but I did that work a bit. And quite frankly, the job I'm not going to lie, that job was fun. I had a good time. I had a nice paycheck. I had good benefits, but I was like 22 years old. Mm. And I went to work and I was having fun, but it didn't feel meaningful. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, this is a good job for, you know, someone in middle age with a family who, like, finds all their meaning from their family and their home life. Um, and they just have a nice cushy job that, like, feels good, but it's not where they get their meaning from. And I thought this just isn't right for me, someone who's so kind of mission driven i'm mission driven what i do because i care about my impact that i make and so i knew immediately that wasn't my long-term goal and because i really really enjoyed that course in my senior year um i applied for masters of public health programs at a few different institutions top tier institutions and i i got in and i and i um made the choice to go to brown uh and make that switch even though i knew it would be a pay cut it would be less less cozy. I even had to take out more loans, you know. So it was it was an intentional decision that came with a lot of risk. Um, but in my gut, it felt right. It felt like the role that I was meant to kind of have in the world, to be honest. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And like now, like as you mentioned earlier, you wear various different hats. Like you're a professor, you're a researcher, and you're like also this kind of advocator as well when it comes to like social issues and things of that nature. Like what, I guess you could say, kind of started this kind of passion towards um, becoming like a professor and like doing like the research and actively engaged and working with the state legislature and things of that nature. So, so much of it are just happy accidents, to mm. tell you the truth. But um, what's always been true is that my core, my strong desire to, to leave the world better than I found it, 
to improve the lives of as many people as I can, but especially the people who are the most marginalized and disadvantaged. And to me, that's the common theme through all these different things. And, um, you know, I never intended to be a professor. I actually applied to medical school at the same time that I applied to PhD program. And I got into like three different medical schools because um, I thought, you know, medicine's a good way to help people improve their lives. Um, but then, you know, there are financial concerns, there's a different level of time commitment. And I realized like as an epidemiologist, you really focus on population health. And quite frankly, you have a bigger impact. I don't wanna offend any physicians out there, but the truth is, instead of making that impact on that one-on-one, -on -one, you know, in the, in the office, in the exam room, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. I get to impact um, kind of like grassroots movements, social justice movements, conduct research that can inform policy, get, you know, get in front of le um, legislators, inform them to, you know, vote in the way that's going to support the populations that need that support. And I think like, I just kept saying yes. I kept saying yes to every opportunity that came my way that fit with kind of my mission. Um, and I just, I, I became passionate and the more years that have gone by, the more and more passionate I get about social justice, about making sure that my impact, you know, is the kind that I want to have and ha that I want to be really intentional about it. And so what I've realized is I'm thrilled I didn't go into medicine. I mean, because COVID would have, I wouldn't have made it quite honestly. I, I've, I have so much empathy and compassion for my healthcare colleagues you know, who are really in the, in the trenches with it. But, um, I'm able to make that one-on-one -on -one contribution through mentoring, mm. through working with individual students with all different backgrounds. So many who have never had anyone in their family go to college before, you know, just don't, you know, haven't had like the parental support, the family support, have to work one or two jobs to even put themselves through school. And I feel like I have such a big impact on an individual level that way that I thought I would miss out completely of by, um, by not going to medical school. So I get this, you know, as a professor, I get to teach and be a mentor in a way that's super meaningful to me. But then I also get to work on this research that, um, you know, can, can really inform big, big picture things. Like how do we address climate change, um, to improve health and how do we keep our kids safe from the harms of social media and, how do we, you know, I, I, I did some research on projecting some of the, you know, negative consequences in particular that might happen if Roe versus Wade is overturned. Uh, so I really get to play a role in so many different issues and in individuals' lives. And I, I really just find it incredibly rewarding. And I'm so glad that in addition to like, you know, making my to-do list and my priority list and all that, that I, that I followed my gut. That yeah. I found my wish and I heard that internal voice. Yeah, no, that's that's really beautiful. And I, I hear the passion in your voice when you talk about your research. And I kind of want to dissect that a little bit. Like I, I hear, you know, um, like I was mentioning earlier, that passion when it comes to your research. And like just because I, I know you personally, like I know the passion that you have towards like your family as well. And so I'm curious as far as like, um, I guess I want to put that to the side a little bit and talk about that a little later, but like, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your research and like how you started 
building like um, the questions that you begin to like research and answer and like the support that you provide to like legislatures, I guess like the question is what um, do you mind talking a little bit around like your research niche? Sure. So, you know, when I went through my PhD, there were a lot of kind of like old school professors at an Ivy League institution who felt that, you know, in, in academia and in research, you kind of, you get an area of expertise, right? And then you live in that space. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I understand why. But I also think like the world is so complex and interconnected. Um, and I like to be, I like to have, you know, my hands in everything. So <laughs> I always push back against... <laughs> You know, that I just need to, you know, I just need to live in one space in terms of research, because at the end of the day, I'm a methodologist, right? So somebody comes to me with a research question, no matter what it's about, um, I can help develop a study design, do the kind of the analytics side. So I, I'm really grateful that my skill set translates because I did my dissertation around kind of some of the harms of Facebook um, on young adults especially around kind of just having negative experiences, some of the feelings, psychological feelings that come up when you're kind of seeing other people, um, you know, how great their lives are, what that means, how that impacts a young, a young mind, a young person's health and well-being. And I'm still doing that work today. I have a federal grant funded through the National Institute of Health right now, looking at the ways in which um, college students are using their smartphones, a big part of which is social media. And the risk of developing depressive symptoms. So, so I did like, I, I focus on that area and I've stuck with that area, but I've, I have not, you know, turned away other areas of research. I mm-hmm. still say yes to as many things as I possibly can. So, uh, a, a, a way in which I do that is finding really great colleagues who are expertise in other areas who I can work with, but also really great students. Honestly, I have the privilege of working with just impressive students who are passionate and intellectually curious. And, you know, if they're passionate about, um, you know, abortion rights and they want to do a health impact assessment to see like what in the state of Rhode Island, where, where I am, um, you know, what, how many women do we expect would suffer from domestic violence? How many children do we expect would suffer from child abuse? How many um, additional people would need financial assistance? You know, all these, how many, how many people would have mental health problems if we all of a sudden turned over Roe versus Wade? So like I get involved in these really meaningful projects like that. That's an example. um, And that actually was put in front of legislators and presented as evidence when they, they codified um, Roe versus Wade in this state so that even if there's a federal um, change in that policy that the policy is still protected in the state of Rhode Island mm-hmm. so I mean that wasn't like so it's something I care about it's not my that's like not my primary area but I but I support it you know and I just started doing more research around the health and well-being and discrimination related to sexual and gender minorities which is something that's particularly meaningful to me but I just let my I let my soul guide me yeah. You know, I if things mean something to me, I want to I want to step in and help out. If I get to mentor a student or a colleague and as a part of the process, it's just a bonus. Yeah. Um, but I also I won't be I'm not going to get stuck in a box, you know. I'm going to I'm going to do anything and everything that comes my way where I feel 
that I can make the world better or have I, I have a shot at it. Yeah, no, that's a real beautiful thing. I, I think the way that I'm hearing that is like, you know, a lot of, I guess you could say like traditionally people have used, um, I guess you could say like their degrees as tools in the sense to say like, this is kind of like my sandbox and this is how I play in my sandbox. Like um, I do this specific type of research and I don't necessarily go on to the bounds of it. But like for you as an individual, like you've always been like this curious individual that says like, hey, you know, if I set my mind to something, I'm going to stick it. But if I find something else that finds interest to me, as you mentioned beforehand, with like the engineering and adding, adding the the microbiology into that, like that was just an addition that you found to be interesting. So it just added to the person that you are. So like this tool of your PhD and being an epidemiologist, like your research isn't just confined to the bounds of what you did your dissertation on. It's whatever as you as a human being as like an organic being that exists and finds interest in various different things, like it expands to those things as well. And I think that it's it's really interesting. Um, but like a question that I have is like, why Rhode Island? Like, yeah, you mentioned as far as you have that federal grant from the NIH that, you know, may influence policy across the country. But like you stick to your home state of um, Rhode Island, working at Johnson and Wells, working at um, Brown. Like, why did you decide to make that your particular home base compared to like anywhere else in the country? That's I mean, that's a great question. I had never been to Rhode Island and didn't know much about it until I decided to make the move to Brown for my master's degree. And honestly, I, I knew of Brown, right, as this. Um, famous institution, I don't think I even knew it was in a place called Rhode Island, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, so I just discovered the state coming here for school. And then after two years of a master's, um, instead of medical school, I decided to stick around for the PhD, which was another four years. So I had been here six years. And during my PhD, um, I was able to get, you know, the difference between medical school and a PhD is instead of paying about a house worth of, uh, you know, tuition or more and taking out student loans for medical school, I actually got paid a salary, you know, probably below poverty, but it still got paid a salary. <laughs> and I was able to save up and actually buy my first house during my PhD. So I ended up, you know, finishing my PhD. I had been in Rhode Island for six years and I owned a house and, you know, I met, I met my partner, um, and my and my two stepkids and I just I kind of created a family and a home and Brown also gave me this incredible network of not just like colleagues but students and peers um, and it's an environment where I felt very welcomed I saw people like me for the first time really excelling and I got to tell you as an engineering student I never had one female professor mm. in four years I didn't even have a female professor, let alone um, like a gay female professor. Um, but by the time I came to Brown, I just, there's such a diverse uh, population there and it's such a welcoming community. So I, I really started to feel, you know, like this was my home away from home. And um, the people and even the institution, honestly, just made me feel like I was a part of. Mm -hmm. And that's really powerful. And 
I learned to, I mean, I honestly didn't like Rhode Island when I first got here, but the more I stuck around, you know, the more I saw what it had to offer. And being the smallest state in the country, there are tremendous benefits from a professional standpoint, because I mean, I know all the key players in kind of in public health and epidemiology, um, even in education, um, because I've been here long enough and it's so interconnected. And quite frankly, I bet it's a lot easier to make real life change here because of how small it is and connected that it is in a way that it's gotta be so so much harder in other states where, you know, one county or even or even a city is bigger than the whole state of Rhode Island. So there are tremendous tremendous benefits that way. And I sure don't mind that I can, you know, go hike through the woods, you know, with a quick drive. I can go to a beach in a quick drive. You still get the fall season. Um, so there, there are so many reasons, but, um, pretty soon I will have lived here longer than anywhere else. So, um, I'm a, I'm a lifer now, it seems like. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And so like you touched on one thing that like, I really want to touch on like earlier as far as picking that up, talking about family, like you talked about your partner and your two step kids. I know that you also have a son as well. Um, like what does that balance look like? Because I know just the type of person that you are like you give more than 110 percent with everything that you do and like listening to all of the work that you do with um on the research side and being a professor and mentoring students and things of that nature i know that you try to give that same amount of energy towards like your home life as well and so i'm curious around what that balance looks like for you and how do you best try to manage it well, I want to be totally honest. It, it's a constant effort. You know, it's a constant effort. The balance is so hard. I, you know, I thought getting a double major engineering degree was really hard. And then when I got a PhD at a Ivy League institution, I thought, you know, that's, this is probably the hardest thing I'm ever going to do. And quite frankly, it was a lot of just naivety because um, having my own child has been by far the hardest job that I've ever had. Mm. And um, I'd get five more PhDs, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, it's no comparison. And I want to make sure that I give my family, you know, the best of me, and that I don't use up the best I have to offer at work and, and mentoring other students and participating in research. And it's really hard. Um, that 22 year old version of myself who thought this would be a nice cozy job for someone with a family who doesn't need to get meaning out of work was like, was wrong because I'm just the kind of person where like, I need to be getting meaning out of my work. And I, I have a full house family at home. I have to, you know, help take care of the household caretake for family. Um, but I can't go to work and find no meaning in it. And so then I really do have to balance it, you know, um, and I, I've got to tell you, it's a constant struggle, but the most important thing is having a support network. Mm -hmm. I just, I feel for people that don't have a support network because we need it. It takes, when people say it takes a village, um, you know, it's not just a saying it's, it really means it. And my, um, my family of origin does not live around here. So I don't have a lot of just like built in support. So having, um, you know, your family chip in, making sure that um family understands we're all you know we all support each other and we're caretakers for one another as as life requires but also finding um friends and 
you know, you're, you kind of like make your own family and people who inspire you and want to be supportive of one another is life changing. And I honestly, I don't know how I could balance everything if I didn't find people who were just like genuine, caring people who wanted to be a part of my, you know, network. Uh, so I, I feel really blessed in that because I, I quite frankly, I think about, you know, single moms out there or even single dads, um, you know, who, who struggle and who maybe just don't have the support. And I cannot, I, I honestly can't put myself in their shoes because I just know what a struggle it is when I have a, a privilege and a lot of support. Um, but honestly, trying to carve out time that's just for my family put my phone down, turn off my work computer and try to give every ounce of my brain to them for periods of time is so critical uh, because if I, if I don't, if I'm not intentional about it, I will be thinking about my, my work all the time. And that's just the way my brain goes. So really like carving out the time, carving out the space um, and reminding myself about what's truly important. Cause I want to make a, a, an impact, a positive impact on the world but my values are also that my family is first and foremost, you know? Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so like, I hear a lot of this kind of pursuit of excellence that this theme that's going on, like when it comes to not only like your work, also with your family, I'm curious when it comes to like you as an individual, like, you know, obviously the, the things that you care about, like your work gives you meaning, like your family gives you meaning as well like um what i guess you could say what do you do as far as just like when it comes to like your core um to help um support the the energy that you give to give your best when it comes to work or give your best to when it comes to your family i mean honestly that's probably an area where i have i stand to improve quite a bit you know there's still a lot of room for improvement um and quite frankly, some of the work that I do fills that for me, mm. honestly, because I get meaning out of it. And I don't think that's true of everyone. And I think that's OK. Um, but some of that some of that kind of feeds me. Um, but I have to like I have to get a good amount of exercise. I can my mood can really tank if I'm not getting some activity in there. I got to get a good amount of sunlight. Um, I got to carve out time, not just to work, not just with family, but also with those friends people who I identify with, people who I feel supported by, um, you know, I need to just create that space. And sometimes that space might be going for a walk. It might be mowing the lawn um, just by myself, getting some fresh air. Um, but but it's hard. It's hard with all the responsibilities and the different roles uh, to carve out that space. But it's so important. And I know that there's a lot of burnout happening right now. Um, you know, and I think it's even more important than ever for me in particular, just to, to carve out that space and know that, you know, I can't be the kind of family member, mom, um, colleague, professor, researcher that I want to be if I'm not prioritizing myself, you know, making sure that I'm okay first. Because, you know, it's like when they, when the oxygen mask comes down in the airplane and they say to put yours on before you, <laughs> before you help your kid, um, it's that's what life has to be right like i can't my four-year-old son i can't show him how to be a healthy well-adjusted person 
if I if I am not that myself. Mm. You know, it's really hard to teach and demonstrate something if you don't have it. And so it's even more important that I prioritize that um, to just be the best that I can be. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And so like you as you mentioned beforehand, like your four year old son and trying to demonstrate like to be that best person, like um, is that something that you like consciously think about? Like you what did you mentioned beforehand, like carving out like the time and things of that nature. Is that something that you like practice like with a journal or a notebook or like how do you go about making sure that you're actively giving yourself the right kind of balance? um for your day i know you mentioned like going and cutting out the grass and all those kind of things but like is it kind of like a journal that you have or like a um a calendar that you use or something of that nature so i mean i am like i'm a very data-driven person i can tell you you've got me figured out just with the questions you're asking i do like (laughs) um i do try to keep track as much as possible um like I, I try to keep track of how much water I'm drinking in a day to make sure that I'm staying hydrated. I try to keep track, uh, make sure I'm eating enough healthy food and nutrients, um, make sure I'm getting enough steps in. And I fall short all the time, but honestly just tracking it for me is like the first step at, at self-care because at least I have an awareness of like, mm. oh, you know what? Today I didn't do meet exactly the goal that I want to here. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put a little more extra effort in tomorrow. Um, I've even started exploring some of those like mindfulness apps and I've been thinking about, you know, meditation. I've heard so many good things recently around like mindfulness and, um, you know, so honestly I'm exploring, but I got to say my four-year-old is incredibly helpful at helping me be reflective around where I'm at. You know, I, I know I've had a really long day or I need to take a break and prioritize myself. If my four-year-old says, you know, like, Mommy, how come you're talking mean to me? You know, it really stops you in your tracks. Really stops you in your tracks. Like, oh, wow. You know, like the four-year-old kind of untainted, just hearing my tone change. You know, so I've got to say there's been, there's a lot of reflection that comes through that and just trying to stay aware of the space that I'm in, um, my mood, when I'm feeling a little too overwhelmed. Um, so much of it can't be planned so much of it i can't write down in a notebook and i can't plan out it's like this constant awareness and mindfulness that's so hard to achieve that's really needed to make sure that i can take the you know a step back i might have to say to my four-year-old you know like mommy mommy just needs a break mommy's gonna take a five-minute break um and i think that's being okay with that being accepting of that knowing that I'm only human and I can't do everything and I can't do everything perfectly. Um, and that even showing that it's a struggle is, is going to be good for the people I mentor and for my kids. Um, because we all need to know that we have the space to create boundaries, to prioritize ourselves and take that space, even when it's hard, you know, even if it creates bad feelings for, for someone, because, that's that's just what's needed so honestly it's a it's a constant work in progress and trying to stay really aware um you know and i fall short and and i'm okay with that because I, I i wake up every day trying to start again and do do my best yeah you know 
while you were kind of talking there, it, it, something dawned on me that was really beautiful as far as just like your son saying to you, like, why are you talking mean to me? Like, there's a awareness there that is like, one, you know, the child is like genuinely inquisitive about like asking like, hey, why are you talking to me like that? <laughs> but yeah. also at the same time, it's kind of like a, a pulse check at the same time to make sure like, hey, are you okay? And like, I, I think that as you talked earlier around like Rhode Island being a home away from home and the importance of having a support network, like when it comes to that aspect around building community, like, um, you know, you obviously chose your partner, like obviously you, uh, you're raising your child the way that, you know, like you seem to feel best. You chose your friends that um, you feel like are, um, people that you can identify with or people that can support you in like your life endeavors and even like with the people that you decide to work with and like mentor it builds this kind of community in the sense of that um hopefully fills your cup and it sounds like the way that um you've gone about this is like the people that you've chosen you've in they do intentionally fill your cup and so like i'm curious around like um how you you go about choosing your community and like how you navigate that whenever those situations come about where you know you are feeling a little bit overwhelmed and like your cup is spilling over or boiling over a little bit because the pressure is just that high how do you um leverage the different aspects of your community whether it's at home work wherever to help you I guess you could say settle back down and go back down to a simmer. That's a great question. I think, I think community is, is the answer. I think like for me, especially at this stage of my life and after the disruption of the, of the pandemic, uh, community has never been more important. And, uh, I have a greater awareness of what it means after feeling kind of isolated for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, just taking some time out to have like one social event with people who you know inspire me make me feel good make me laugh um i know care about me and i care about them like just just taking the time for that is is like healing um and freeing and it gives me a break and i put my phone away and i you know dedicate the time just to to finding joy and i try to do that in every realm of my life. Um, when I'm doing research, I'm not just, you know, it's not a business relationship. It's just the truth. I identify students um, with interest and and we cultivate community. We create a team. It's not just about what projects folks are doing and meeting a deadline. It's like we support each other. Someone's sick, you know, our team puts together a, a, like a, you know, some soup and drops it off. Someone's uh, got a parent with cancer in the hospital. We're, you know, getting a thank you cards and seeing if there's anything we can do. You know, some students who didn't have transportation and had trouble getting groceries, like we pick them up and we take them to the store. Um, and knowing that I'm a part of supporting people and a part of a community where people support each other I just think there's nothing, I think there's nothing better than that. 
and I'm so grateful that, you know, I'm surrounded by so many people, just like really good hearted people yeah. who, who, who need the mentorship and support, but are so giving of it as well. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's like my breath of fresh air. Like that's life-saving for me is having, is having a community. And that's whether it's my students whether it's my colleagues, whether it's my friends, my family, but like these communities of care, communities where you can trust people, communities where you know if like you woke up one day and you couldn't move, you couldn't get out of bed, you know, who knows why, um, that people would step up. It's just, it's just so critical. And so when I'm like really struggling and I need help, I call up someone in my network and I say like, hey, can we, you know, can we meet up can we meet up for a drink? Can we meet up at the beach? Can we, you know, go for a walk? Um, and and I'm so lucky that I have people who I can call who would step up for me. Yeah. No, that's really beautiful. And, like, I'm curious, like, um, you know, as far as whenever you have those kind of people into your life, like, it sounds like the there's the component of the blessings, right? Where it's well reciprocated and things of that nature. But then there's the also um, to play, I guess you could say devil's advocate on this. um, The people that just really take away, right? Like um, you pour so much into your, you pour so much into their cup or you're very open with them. And like, um, I guess you could say kind and things of that nature. And, sometimes people take that for granted and like or they take your kindness um and run with it i i wonder like how do you balance that because you know it's not always the rose-colored glasses and you know not to say necessarily that like you have any negative people in your life or anything of that nature i know you know how to differentiate them but i'm curious if you're willing to share like um, how you identify those people and like how you um, not necessarily keep them out of your life, but keep them at a safe distance. Cause I think that you can learn from almost anyone. I mean, that's, that's such a good question. I would say the, the older I've gotten and the more responsibilities I've gotten in particular, like at home with family, like it takes, it takes almost every ounce of me to be a caretaker, just, just within my family. And I think as a younger person, I'm naturally a caretaker. I took on a lot of friendships and relationships where um, there wasn't a great balance. You know, I gave so much of myself and um, maybe it wasn't reciprocated at all. And at this stage of my life, I don't have time for it. I don't have I don't have the energy for it. And luckily I'm very clear on my priorities. I know that all of, all of my energy and what I have to give has to go to my family first. And then it's gonna go to the network of people who have shown me through their behavior and their kindness and generosity that they're there for me, that I want to make sure I give it back to them. Um, but the reality is like, there are people who aren't going to have anything to give. And when I'm doing really well, things are going smoothly and I have that extra, you know, space to take things on. I'll still invest in people who need it, but have nothing to give. But a lot of the time I don't have anything extra to give. And so I have to take space and it doesn't, sometimes it looks like cutting people out. Like this is not healthy for me. This is, this relationship has kind of taken its, 
taken its toll. And at this point, like it's not adding value to my life. And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but yeah. we can only take on so much. Um, and so sometimes you have to let people go. And other times it's just realizing that there are certain moments or periods in time in which you might have to take space. Um, like I have great friends who live in different parts of the country who, you know, luckily if we don't talk for a month or two months, like there's no love lost. And it's just as if we're picking right up where we left off. And those are the, those are the relationships that truly like stand, you know, those are the lifelong relationships. Um, like, even if I don't talk to you for two months, if something devastating happened in your life, I'm going to hop on a plane and I'm going to, I'm going to be there, you know? And, and so there's a certain level of, of growth and maturity. And honestly, I think trial and error in relationships and friendships and networks to figure out like, what do you need from someone and what do you have to offer for people and how much can you give and how much do you need in order to keep giving? And I think you need to like get to know yourself and what, what works for you and what's healthy for you and then create those boundaries. Um, and someone might be the greatest person to support you and, and vice versa for a period of time. And, and then it might end. You know, it might not add value to your life anymore, and that's okay. You know, that's what life is. There are very few relationships that are intended to last your whole life. Um, and just because the relationship ends or you have to let it go doesn't mean it has no value. It doesn't mean it didn't change who you are, bring you joy, bring you meaning for the, for the period of time that you had it. And so I just, I think I've learned, you know, painfully through painful relationship dynamics over time over my young adult life um that these things are just okay and that we have to make decisions about relationships and we can't give every ounce of who we are to every person who comes through the door um because because we're you know we're finite you know there's an end to what we can give we can't just give and give and give yeah no that makes a lot of sense i i really appreciate you know just you sharing your whole perspective on this like it's it's really felt like one of our old conversations you know I remember just like <laughs> back in the day and just us chilling and things of that nature and like um just being able to just talk about life and like I really want to just just thank you for being on the show today and um sharing your perspective um uh, before you go or before I let you go, there are um, a few lightning questions that I like to do on every episode. I want to run through those and then I'll let you get back to the rest of your day. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. All right. So what is your favorite relaxation or self-care activity? Oh, don't make fun of me, but it really is mowing the lawn. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I well, love it. Peaceful. I get a break from people out in the nature and getting some vitamin d from the sun yeah no that's beautiful I, i'm sure like your your yard looks beautiful at this point like it's been <laughs> um been a few years so I, i'm sure it looks amazing um what is your best book recommendation Ooh. honestly this past winter break i read about three or four of bell hooks books um, I wasn't too familiar with her work, but she passed away and I saw more about her and more about her work and I picked up her books and um, there's one in particular about um, cultivating community mm. and I've cared, I mean, since I read it this winter, I've carried it with me and I've, I've really used it to, to change my approach to my life and my work 
Um, so I, I, I can't advocate for work enough. What's the name of the book about cultivating community or what's the author's name again? I want to look into this. Bell Hooks. Okay. Bell Hooks is the author and she's, uh, she's just created these seminal works and she's, she was in academia, um, and just has a lot of really influential work. So, uh, whether you're, you know, in academia or something else, it's definitely worth checking out because it really, it's like the, it's like life perspective. Mm. Uh, I think teaching to transgress is probably her most famous work. Um, but there's, there's just, you can't go wrong. Okay. I'll Anything out there, bye. I definitely check it out. Um, and one person you want to thank for your journey thus far. One person is so, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, honestly, I just want to thank my, I want to thank Zeke, who is my four-year-old, because, you know, he's changed my life. And in ways that I never could have imagined. And I, you know, I feel very grateful to be his mom and to, you know, be able to see him grow and be able to have the experience of letting him really reflect um, back to me who I am and how I should be. Yeah. Oh, that's really beautiful. Well, thank you again for, for being on the show and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, you too. All right. This has been another episode of Don't Be Coy with Uncle Lou. As always, I'd like to thank this episode's guest for a great conversation, as well as thank you, the listener, for joining in. Whether you're a first-time listener or a regular, I always appreciate your support. If you like today's episode and ever want to listen to more, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And to join our community and access future bonus content, be sure to visit dbkpodcast.com.